If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 634. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to that YouTube page where now you can give thanks, right? Click on the little heart button underneath the video. You can, if you like this video, if you like any of the videos in the past, you can click on that heart button, send a donation. Also, you can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You already heard about that. Go to brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I'd like to hear what you want to hear. So all those are great ways to support the show and keep this thing going. But I want to talk, this is a listener-generated episode. Somebody actually said this. Look, hey, will you do a review of this book? And so here it is. This is a review of the book, Power and Liberty by Gordon Wood. So um, this is a neat little book. It's, and I say little, it's only about 188 pages. If you don't know who Gordon Wood is, Gordon Wood is uh, one of the top five recognized American historians in the world. And he is a historian of the founding generation. Um, he's written numerous books on the topic. And he churns out little books like this now. Um, there's been several of them. Um, and the point is to create a conversation about who the founding generation is. Now, I'll say this about Gordon Wood. Gordon Wood has been very critical of the 1619 Project. He's been critical of critical race theory. He's critical of the... Uh, leftist surge in the American historical profession. Now, Wood is not a conservative. Uh, he, conservatives generally like him. He's, uh, I wouldn't say he's a conservative. Uh, again, I say that conservative. Um, but he's palatable. And I say he's palatable because he is a realist about a lot of things. And this book contains a substantial amount of realism. In fact, there are some really interesting things about this tiny little book that I think make it worthwhile to go out and pick up and read. And I'm going to focus on those couple of things that make it interesting. Now, Wood, of course, very famously recently debated Woody Holton of South Carolina about uh, slavery and the founding. And this is something that Wood has become really irritated with in the 1619 Project and saying that America is basically based on slavery. His position is that it isn't. It's based on liberty. And if you look at the title of the book, Power and Liberty, it's based on liberty. While the founding generation was not supremely committed to the abolition of slavery overall, they were at least suspicious of the institution. And you had people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and others who certainly wanted to get rid of the institution. George Washington, at least at one point in their lives, were advocating the abolition of slavery. And so Wood is saying, look, we're being overly critical of this period uh, in saying that 1619 and slavery somehow defined America and that the founding was all about slavery and that the American War for Independence was about slavery. That's one of his pet peeves as well. And of course, the 1619 Project has since changed that. 
right? They've changed that part of it, uh, where they said that the war, the American War for Independence, was all about slavery. Now they're saying it's that, that's not true. Uh, Wood admires Abraham Lincoln. Um, he does not think that uh, abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison really knew what uh, they were doing at times, and the uh, the issue of anti-slavery abolition in the founding period. They weren't necessarily um, well-versed in that particular history of America. So he has a, a unique perspective on the founding period among mainstream historians. He's not someone who has bought and taken hook, line, and sinker the CRT the Wokies, all the stuff that's going on with the left. He's an older guy, and he is a more traditional historian, which is why, generally, the new historians don't like him and why conservatives run to embrace him. Um, he is uh, certainly more in line with an ideological origins of the American War for Independence. Some, he's you know, more in line with someone like Bernard Balin than, say, uh, someone like Charles Beard, which would be a, a very um, hard interpretation of the war, meaning that there was a financial ramification for these people. They wanted to make money, or at least the Constitution as well. So he is, uh, he is much more into the soft history of the period. But this book is about, the subtitle, though, is, is Constitutionalism in the American Revolution. So this particular book is about American constitution-making, which is why I think the person that asked me to review it found it interesting, and of course... Uh, it is an interesting topic. Jack Green has the best books on the founding period in constitutionalism. He is, he is the guy to go to when, it, when you talk about American constitutionalism in the founding period. Gordon Wood's book, in many ways, echoes Jack Green, at least the chapter on that part of it. So uh, the couple of chapters I want to focus on, uh, the first is the imperial debate. And the imperial debate is all about this dominion theory and sovereignty. And he ties that very good, very well, I should say, to, he does a good job of this, to the period leading up to the ratification of the Constitution, because they're the same. You see, during the period leading to the war in the imperial debate, the American colonists had come up with a theory, the dominion theory, that said, okay, look, what we have is a federal system, essentially, with the British Empire. The Parliament has no control over the colonies. The colonies are essentially independent, but tied in loyalty to the king. He is our only focus for government. He is our sovereign. The Parliament is not sovereign. The king is sovereign. And so this is why the colonists were appealing to the king directly throughout the period leading to the war. That's why they had the Olive Branch Petition. It's why in the Declaration they indicted the king, they said very little about the parliament, but it was the king that was doing these things because all these horrible things to the colonists, because the royal governors were the representatives of the king. They had their own legislatures. That was the legal legislative body for the colonists, and this is how they conceptualize these things. The parliament was something else. So essentially, they had a federal system. And in their mind, the center, meaning the empire, could regulate trade, international trade, but that was about it, and they could defend the colonies. And if you think about how the Constitution was sold to the states during ratification, this was the exact same argument made in favor of the Constitution. We have a central authority. 
that can regulate international trade and ensure that we have free trade between the states. That's what regulating commerce meant, free trade. And that it will defend the states in case they're invaded or in domestic insurrection. Everything else was left to the states. This is exactly how James Wilson, James de Caledonia, sold it in the State House Yard speech. That's how everyone sold it to the states. Very few people thought that we were going to have, at least if you look at how the Constitution was ratified, we would have a central authority with unlimited power. That's not what they wanted in Philadelphia when they went. And James Madison essentially echoed the British Empire when he said that the Constitution should have a negative on state laws. It should be supreme in all cases whatsoever. All cases. Well, this is what Tom Paine was critical of in the period uh, in 1776 in the American crisis. He called it slavery. So you have this tradition of Americans resisting this type of centralization. But of course, um, this is not what we got with the Constitution. So I think Wood does an excellent job in a very quick chapter in a summary of this Dominion theory and this idea of American federalism and how that was based on right, their conception of the American War for Independence. The next chapter, state constitution making, I found to be fascinating. Nobody really talks about this, but Wood, I think, does a great service to the American historical profession in talking about state constitutions. Now, if you take my American constitutions class, what do I talk about there? Well, state constitutions. Because these state constitutions were the key. You see, the states consider themselves to be independent. The states were states, just as the state of Great Britain. They were 13 independent states united together in common cause against the British, and that's it. If you go back and look at the historical record, you cannot come away thinking that there is any other type of union but a federal republic in American history. Even after the Constitution was written and ratified, Wood essentially says it. Well, I mean, this is what people thought we were getting because that's how it was sold to the states. He makes a statement similar to that, but this is what they thought we were getting. So you get a federal republic of independent states. And so the states themselves are writing constitutions. So in some cases, they're simply rolling over the colonial charter. and others, they're writing entirely new constitutions. Some of these constitutions did not survive long. Others did. In fact, the Massachusetts Constitution, which John Adams, I talked about it yesterday, John Adams wrote his initial draft was a pro-slavery constitution. The second draft was not explicitly pro-slavery. And so, therefore... Uh, you get the ability for the Massachusetts court system to abolish slavery. But uh, you have all the states writing constitutions, many of them writing them with Bill of, Bill of Rights. And so this tradition, American tradition of written constitutions, is so important. And he, he talks about this. Written constitutions are a byproduct of the American experience. Now, there have been other written constitutions before this, but no one did it like Americans, and they talked about it a lot. So if you look at the globe, right, globalization and everything that goes on and all the things that happened after the 1770s, the whole idea of having a written constitution is an American phenomenon. And I think he does a fantastic job in bringing out the importance of these state constitutions and these independent states and how, how important the founding generation considered the state to be. Thomas Jefferson, there was a complaint. You have all these people leaving the Continental Congress because they're going back to their states to write their constitutions. They didn't care about the central authority. It was a simple union, a defensive union, an alliance to fight off the British. We would get a central authority, the Articles of Confederation, but it took them almost the entire war to come up with this. Now, 
1776, John Dickinson was tasked with writing the Articles of Confederation. But it took essentially until 1781 to get this thing ratified, right? So it took forever. Whereas the states had already come up with constitutions in the meantime. They had constitutions. They weren't really worried about the central authority. And the central authority the founding generation came up with was very weak. And this is what they wanted. And so he gets into that. The next chapter is the crisis of the 18, 1780s, excuse me, where you have this perception of the, of the Articles of Confederation that has been essentially foisted on America by progressive historians and all this. This thing was, a, or, or even before that. Uh, actually, it was the progressives who tried to say the, the Articles weren't really that bad. But uh, before that, you had this perspective that the Articles were the worst thing to ever happen. And then, of course, you had this back and forth. Wood seems to think that the Articles really weren't that bad, that the founding generation uh, was more in line with amending the Articles, and what they got in Philadelphia was a shock. And I would tend to agree. You see, this was the, this is the unknown part of the Philadelphia Convention. A lot of people don't realize that when Madison showed up and presented the Virginia Plan, it was not popular. It was not popular for a variety of reasons, most importantly because it created a national government. And Wood talks about this to a point. He says, look, in the next chapter of the Federal Constitution, he says, look, the real issue in Philadelphia was not large state and small state. It was nationalists versus federalists. Now, he doesn't use those terms. He does talk about the nationalists. But the real issue in Philadelphia was nationalism against federalism. This is what was going on here. And, of course, within that context, you had the establishment of an executive branch and some of these things going on. But what the real issue was in Philadelphia was this conflict between those that wanted a national government, like James Madison, James Wilson, Governor Morris. These were the men pushing for a national constitution, a national government, against those that were more in favor of the existing system, people like John Dickinson, people like Roger Sherman of Connecticut, people like John Rutledge of South Carolina, people like John Lansing of New York. They were certainly more in line with the original federal union that they had than some type of new, innovative government. And that's the real rub in Philadelphia. It's all over the debates. But what we got out of Philadelphia was not, was not a national government, but a federal republic. Now, they try to wrestle with this idea of sovereignty, and he brings this up. He says, look, the anti-federalists were hammering this new this new constitution as being a tool of centralization because there can only be one sovereign. If you include the supremacy clause, you have to have one sovereign, and that would be, of course, the United States government. Everything else is subservient. The proponents of the document went out of their way, and I talk about this in the originalist papers at McClanahan Academy. I talk about it in American constitutions. You need to take those classes, by the way. The originalist papers is in 101 documents in favor of the ratification of the constitution. You would get this perspective if you took that class. The proponents of the document went out of their way to promise that we were not getting a national consolidated government. We were getting a federal republic. And of course, people that had reservations, Randolph in Virginia, uh, Mellington Smith in New York, they had reservations. But ultimately, they sided with the Constitution because they worried about disunion more than anything else. Wood also brings that out too. It was this fear of disunion 
meaning that the states were sovereign and independent, they could do whatever the heck they wanted, the fear of disunion, of not having a union, was more important to these people than this fear over centralization. So they thought they could deal with this. And of course, the speeches and pamphlets and documents written in favor of ratification that said, look, we're not getting a centralized government. We're not getting an elected king. None of that's going to happen. That was more persuasive. James Wilson's State House Yard speech was more persuasive than anything else. The idea that we have a central authority with delegated powers, expressly delegated powers, by the way, that it only has the powers granted, it doesn't have anything else, and the states, the states retain all other powers, right? So we have a central authority that can do these things, like the old British Empire, regulate trade and defend the states, but we have all other concerns. This is, this is Tench Cox. Look at all the things the states can do and that the general government cannot do. Now, one thing that Wood also points out uh, in this particular book is why Madison wanted a national government. This is important. Madison worried about people like Patrick Henry. He worried about petty little tyrants at the state level because Madison didn't really like the, uh, the politics of the states, right? State politics is a lot of uh, networking, backslapping, handshaking, rub my back and I'll rub your back, a lot of these things. And Madison didn't care for that. Madison was a nerd. Madison was almost run out of town uh, in a job with the Virginia House of Burgesses because he didn't go out and party with the boys. And so his daddy had to come in and essentially get his job back. Uh, this is James Madison. He was an antisocial nerd. And Madison didn't care for the way that people like Patrick Henry or go, uh, George Clinton in New York or some of these others, you know, John Hancock in Massachusetts, some of the power these individuals had in their respective states. He thought that a national government would eliminate all of that. You would get rid of these big fish and small ponds and you would create, an, a, you, would, you would minimize the impact of these states on the, on the general government. What Wood talks about a lot is democracy and how the founding generation was really worried about the effects of democracy. He says, he said, look, the guys that went to Philadelphia were generally the individuals that wanted to get rid of paper money and democracy. In the last chapter, he talks about Rhode Island, how Rhode Island was the symbol of what America would be, the commercial state. He doesn't bring up the international slave trade with Rhode Island and Newport, uh, which, of course, was a major part of their economy. Uh, but he brings up you know, that Rhode Island was going to be the symbol. It had paper money, it was inflationary, it was uh, more middle class, more democratic, that that was going to be the future of America. And what the founding generation wanted to do was cut Rhode Island at the knees. They didn't like this stuff. They thought democracy was rampant. They want, and the states were the symbols of democracy. And so they wanted to use the federal constitution to cut democracy. This is the funny thing about all the progressives today that run around and say, the constitution is democratic. It's all about democracy. We have a democracy. The entire point of the constitution, as Wood shows, was to be anti-democratic. They didn't want democracy. The constitution is not supposed to be democratic. There's not a whole lot of democratic elements to it except for the House of Representatives. But even there, you have such large legislative districts. Now it's not really democratic. So that was the whole point. <clears throat> and he brings that out very, very well in this book as well, that, that, that part of it, that you have this push for anti-democracy among the founding generation, anti-paper money, 
They didn't want that stuff either. Um, no inflation. Now he would he criticizes James Madison and others for and John Adams for not really knowing about banking, right? They didn't really understand fractional reserve banking, which uh, that makes them actually good people. But regardless, um, that you you had this, you know, these people were just kind of naive about what finances really needed to be. And then there's a chapter in this book on slavery. What I liked about that chapter, the title is Slavery and Constitutionalism. What I like about this particular chapter is Wood's broad look at slavery as an institution leading up to the United States. And he calls the United States the institution in the United States unique, essentially. This is what Calhoun called it. This is why Calhoun used the term peculiar. It wasn't odd, it was unique. And he says it, right? Plantation slavery in the Americas was unique in the history of slavery. In North America, it was even more unique because, as Wood points out, the birth rate among slaves and white Americans was the same. It was unique because it was, uh, compared to other systems of slavery in the world, benign. And it's slavery. Don't get me wrong. It's still slavery. The attack on slavery, and it's something I didn't mention yesterday, in many ways in America was more about uh, the idea of liberty and economics than morality and religion. Because Americans had invested in this notion of liberty, this ideology of liberty. And if you're going to believe in liberty, then you cannot believe in slavery. And, and, and Americans talked about slavery quite a lot, their own enslavement to the British. If you're going to believe in that, if you're going to believe conclusively in liberty, then you cannot enslave someone else. It's not about morality. It's not. It's about this concept of liberty. And tied into that, of course, is economic liberty. A slave does not own their own person in terms of their economic, their ability to contribute to themselves economically. So you're, you're capturing their labor, and that labor is not theirs. So you own their labor. So the argument against slavery generally in America was that it wasn't free, and it wasn't free labor. And so the arguments were not moral for most people. They were, they were uh, placed in these concepts of liberty and economic liberty. That was the argument when it came to the core of it. Now, I mean, you can talk about human rights and other things and you know, natural rights and this kind of stuff, but it came down to liberty. And Wood talks about natural rights and how Americans believed in natural rights. But it came down to this concept of liberty. And so, but he does, he points the finger back at places like Africa, and he talks about slavery as a, as a global system. And even to this day, there are still people enslaved in the world. And so he, he does a nice job of putting slavery in historical and comparative analysis perspective, which I think is severely lacking among most historians. If you had this kind of position, we wouldn't see the Wokies. We wouldn't see the cancel culture, the social justice warriors. None of this stuff would happen because you would realize that, wait a second here. Now, of course, you, some of the more radical elements would say, well, that's all just white people, but it's not, as he points out. And as anyone who's ever read anything about the institution knows, right? So that's an important part of the book, too. And the other thing I like about this little book is he carries this debate about the founding into the 19th century, into people like John Marshall, into the court, into all these things that happened in the 19th century because this debate over what the American Constitution was and what it meant did not end in 1788. In fact, it was only getting started about what it meant moving forward. So 
I like how he brings the last couple of chapters, not the epilogue, which is all about Rhode Island, but the last couple of chapters, he brings that in, right? He brings this debate over the judiciary, for example. What does that mean? What is, what is the role of the federal judiciary in this entire process? How is this supposed to work? Is the federal judiciary supposed to be the backstop, or are the states supposed to be the backstop? This was the big issue after the Constitution is ratified, and we get the first Judiciary Act, and we know that state uh, decisions can be appealed to federal court, we know that the court starts, inter starts interjecting itself into this discussion of constitutionalism, and he brings up the common law and how many founders thought the common law was dangerous. Right? When you go to a common law system, you essentially undermine the entire point of a written constitution. You see, you have these debates. You've got a written constitution, you have an unwritten constitution, which is the common law. So how do those things work together, and where do the courts fit into all this, and how does this, how do you have, how does a written constitution mesh with this common law system? In many ways, they don't. You create two different constitutions, and so that is a huge debate in the founding period, and part of this American constitutionalism, this uh, this constitutionalism of the American Revolution. He, he carries it out into the 1800s. How we're still fighting the American Revolution in many ways, and the meaning of that into the early 19th century, and in some ways. That carries all the way up to 1860. The meaning of the American Revolution. What was it? Lincoln's vision of the American Revolution it revolutionized the revolution, as Gary Wills said. That was a turning point in American history. We had a whole new revolution. So this meaning of the American War for Independence, we're still talking about it. It really hasn't gone away. Bullets don't solve the legal questions which is why we're still wrestling over what the federal government can do, what the state governments can do. We're still wrestling over that because bullets didn't solve anything. The structure still remains. This is why, again, at McClanahan Academy, I do a whole class on John C. Calhoun, which is coming up this month, by the way. You're going to be seeing it within the next week or so as I'm talking about this. Um, you're going to want to get that class. So when you have this, this debate about you know, what the American War for Independence meant, what the American Constitution, the United States Constitution, the Article of the Confederation, what all that meant, bullets didn't solve any of that because all those issues are still there. We still have the original Constitution. It's still in place. We've amended it, but that didn't really change a whole lot unless you want to reinterpret some of these amendments to mean something they don't, which is a whole other issue, the 14th Amendment and Incorporation, which I've talked about on this podcast several times. So I like this little book by Gordon Wood. He does a service to uh, some of the important parts of American history, American constitutionalism, the state constitutions, written constitutions. He talks about conventions, how important conventions are uh, in the American constitutional tradition. Uh, he talks about, uh, again, uh, the issue of slavery in a broad perspective, the, the contentiousness of the judiciary and what that meant. Of course, we're seeing that right now with uh, potential landmark decision if the Supreme Court actually does issue a decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So we're going to see a lot of things. We're still seeing a lot of things that Wood talks about in this tiny little book, 188 pages. He hammer, he hits a lot of high high points um, in this American constitutional debate. So it's a good book, worth your time to go get it. I read it, and uh, it probably took me no more than uh, you know three hours to read it. Uh, because it is so short, and um, it's a fast read. You can get through it pretty quickly, but it's a lot of fun, and it does, uh, I think, reinforce some of the things that I talk about quite a bit in this particular podcast. All right. Hope you enjoyed this show. Again, if you're on YouTube, click that little thanks heart down there. Send a little bit of money my way if you like the podcast and you like this episode. All right. 
See you tomorrow for the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.